hey yo, and here we go. Another episode of We Talk Comics is on the air and in your ear. I am Mo, and I'm joined by Brett. And on this episode, we're also joined by Key. How are you doing, gentlemen? Happy as hell to be here. Happy as hell, you say. Really good, really good. <laughs> I think I think that's right. Uh, we've done nearly 300 episodes of We Talk Comics in one form or another at this point. And uh, I I think it, it sometimes gets a little bit difficult to get excited, but that's not the case today. Because we are joined by a true icon um, in both the Canadian comics scene as well as the independent scene, uh, Dave Sim. Dave, hello. Thank you so you? much for joining Oh, no problem. No problem. Thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm sorry, did you have a question? I I can, I'm sure we can get, uh, we're all, uh, we're all a little excited. So we're, this, this, remind, this reminds me of uh, when uh, the Beatles went and met Elvis at, at his place. <laughs> and, uh, they come filing in and they're all sitting on the couches and he's sitting on his chair and they're just staring at each other and he goes, somebody doesn't say something soon, I'm going to bed. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I'd like to say that I'm the cute one. I mean, I, I'm gonna... <laughs> okay. That's Mo, right? That's Mo. <laughs> okay. Mo's the cute one. <laughs> all right. <laughs> We normally right, well, think of you as our Ringo, though. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, I'll, I will start. Dave, uh, Dave, I want to go back all the way to the beginning. So uh, you you did a few th- a few pieces for Star Reach. Uh, you were kind of trying to get some work for hire here and there uh, and made the decision to self-publish Cerebus. Uh, and that decision would later inspire uh, so many creators. Uh, the the Peenies who created ElfQuest, Eastman and Laird with Teenage Teen Mutant Ninja Turtles, and then uh, some of the founders of Image have also credited that decision uh, with uh, where they went. So, what was what was the world like? What was comics like uh, at that point? Uh, pretty much mainstream, but at the same time, the direct market was uh, was underway. One of the first comic book stores, and uh, I think probably the second or third comic book store in um, uh, in Canada was Now and Then Books, and I have been going there since it opened in 1971 and saw when uh, the transition was happening of comic stores starting to get new comics in. And um, basically through the local news agents, and then uh, Phil Suling started uh, Seagate uh, in Brooklyn, New York, and was buying directly from the companies and then selling to comic book stores. Uh, I had also done uh, Oktoberfest comics, this being Kitchener, um, through Now and Then Books, and um, Harry Kremer had financed it. Uh, I drew part of it and worked with Gene Day on uh, the other parts of it, and that was color covers, black and white interiors, and at that point, that was when you could see it was about to happen. 
where essentially what happened was um, something in between fanzines and professional comics was going to happen, which at the time, uh, as you mentioned with, uh, with Mike Friedrich, with uh, uh, Starreach, uh, were called ground level comics because there was also the, there's underground comics, there's overground <laughs> comics. So we were going to do something that. that was between those two things. You laugh now, but that that was our identification. We I love it. I love it. In, in, indie comics, as a description, didn't come along until until long after that. So that was really, um, I was getting samples together of uh, comics that I did. I would buy like 50 copies of Quack or Star Reach or Imagine from uh, Mike Friedrich that I could send to publishers to try and get more work. And he ended up uh, rejecting Cerebus and HealthQuest the same month. <laughs> That's one of those things you have to wear for the rest of your life. Uh, I, I don't think either of these have legs. I'm going to stick with the guys that I've got. But um, the... Uh, the fact that I had done a splash page for Cerebus as a sample for Mike and then had it just sort of sitting there and I thought, okay, one of the problems, and this is going to be familiar to you guys as indie guys, is these guys don't publish often enough. Like you do your work and then you sit there and wait and wait and wait and wait for it to get published and nobody publishes it. Um, so I went, well, okay, if I do it myself, then all it is is it's just printing. It's just write and draw the comic, um, paste it up, take it to the printer, get it printed, sell it, and go on to the next one and get the next one done. I think that was the biggest thing that Cerebus brought to the table in 1977-78 uh, was... Um, you got to be out there often enough to uh, to build an audience. Uh, it really hasn't changed since then. Indie comics that uh, should have been successes and could have been successes, but uh, if you only do an issue every eight months, um, that's the exact opposite of momentum. <laughs> <laughs> what is momentum spelled backwards? Well, we can do that later. <laughs> oh no thinking <laughs> i i was i was uh, i was thinking before we started today that uh i wanted to talk about what what things were like before you know heroes world diamond and all that happened and then it occurred to me how many of our listeners might not even know that there was a world of distributors before that uh so when you were those first couple of years um who were the who were the distributors that you were working with? Uh, actually, Seagate Distributors was the biggest one. That was Phil Suling, and at the time that I put out Cerebus Number One, I got uh, Jim Friel, who um, was doing Big Rapids distribution in uh, in Michigan, uh, agreed to take 500 copies of Cerebus number one and uh, Harry Kremer at Now and Then Books, which is just a comic store. He wasn't a distributor. <laughs> agreed to take uh, 500 copies of Cerebus number one. And I decided, okay, I'll print up. That'll 
give me enough money to print 2,000 and I'll have 1,000 left over that uh, I can try and sell individually and to other distributors and uh, got wind of Seagate distributors and uh, sent, it, sent a copy down to Phil Suling and he actually um, called the day that Cerebus number one came in. I really wish I had a photo of uh, our living room full <laughs> of 2,000 feet of Cerebus number one. That's a, that's a lot of uh, warm red. And, uh, I had to unpack them, and a bunch of them, there were like really, really good copies where the reproduction on the cover was clean. And then there were other copies that were really, really badly smudged. And I was just getting angrier and angrier and angrier. The more of the smudged copies I was pulling out, going, I can't sell these to anybody. I can't sell these to anybody. And uh, Denny was at work, so she hadn't come home at that point and just ready to, you know, fly off the handle the moment she walked in the door about this horrible printing job. Phil Suling calls from Brooklyn and says, uh, or actually, I, I, I'm missing a part of the story. Got it all done and went, wow, like half of them are just completely unsellable. The other oh, wow. half are perfect. And uh, Phil Schooling <laughs> called from Brooklyn and said, uh, yeah, I'm interested in this comic. I'd like to take a thousand of them. And I look, <laughs> I look at all the, uh, the smudged, unsellable copies and I go, well, you'll never see a good one. <laughs> <laughs> There you and go. That, True story. True story. <laughs> That's awesome. So a, a couple of thousand copies of this first one, you're kind of leveraging to to have some stock. How many how many issues before it started feeling stable, like you were finding your audience? Uh, it never really was stable. I mean, <laughs> uh, you're talking about self-publishing. It's, um, <laughs> yeah. It's eating a lot, of ma- lot of macaroni and cheese. Um, uh, Denny uh, going down to now and then books asking if anybody wanted to buy our toaster um, <laughs> so that we would have some money um, I think in terms of what you're asking about when uh, when I went when we went monthly at uh, issue 14 um, it was it was possible to keep going I was doing freelance art one month and then doing Cerebus the other month. Mm. And um, that, that made a big difference was uh, not having to jump from the one thing to the other thing. Uh, enough money was coming in on Cerebus to pay the bills sort of barely. And um, I think it was probably... Oh, issue 18, 19, 20, around there that uh, sales were sales were good enough that when we started doing uh, Swords of Cerebus reprinting the first four issues, the trade paperback sales were lucrative enough to um, provide some some padding, some insulation, but. Uh, Really, for for the longest time, we we would have made more money babysitting, <laughs> <laughs> and that's 
really that's really a litmus test for self-publishers. It's like uh, if you can live with babysitting money, uh, you can stay in the game and you can do your comic books and find out if it's going to go somewhere. But uh, don't expect to get don't expect to get rich off of this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely, some things haven't changed. Yeah, yeah. There you go. That's for sure. Dave, one of the questions that I had for you was, um, now, in the case of Mo and I, I know people told us that we should try to do other things and, and like, kind of get our feet wet. But the problem was we always came back to to the project that we're working on because it's what we're passionate about. And in your case, I know you did the earlier work, but was Cerebus always that one thing that you were kind of really just passionate about doing? I don't, uh, that's not the way that I looked at it. I looked at it as keep your eyes open because when you come up with your peanuts or your Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you're only going to, or your Superman, you're only going to come up with one of them. And uh, Cerebus definitely had that vibe to it that, things happened with the book that uh, didn't happen with anything else that I was working on. You always hope for that. You think, okay, you know, I put his blood, sweat, and tears into this and tried to do the best job I can, but you're just waiting to see, okay, which one's going to click. And um, I think you're always better working on something that you're genuinely interested in, and you're always better working on your own thing. The um, the thing I'm probably the most proud of is uh, getting people to think about creator ownership, not just the creativity itself. Um, to have uh, Kevin Eastman and Pete Laird aware of that when they were, you know, sitting in their living room laughing, going. Uh, turtles, uh, yeah, Ninja Turtles, ah, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> it's like, yeah, why don't we do that on our own? Let's not go out there and try and find somebody to sell this to. Let's see what we can do with it on our own, uh, just like Dave Send did. Now, it, you mentioned Swords of Service. Uh, that was... It, in hindsight, it seems like such an obvious thing, but so few people were collecting their work um, into a into a reprint collection. Uh, was that just like, I, was it something you had seen, or was it something that just made sense to you? Uh, it was something that made sense to me, uh, and it was also um, a uh, argument with uh, with Phil Schooling, who um, you know was definitely the, the patron saint of self-publishing uh, <laughs> at the time who um, wanted, wanted me to keep the, uh, the comic books in print. Him coming from um, the convention retail side of things, he looked at um, Zap Comics and Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers and said, this is how you make the money is by keeping all of the issues in print. Mm. And I was saying, uh, no, that's one of the things that, uh, that was a wall that Mike Friedrich hit, was um, all of the Star Reach material was selling like gangbusters so that he kept reprinting it, but then it hit a saturation point 
and suddenly you've got all of these warehousing problems uh, for books mm. that aren't selling and um, still trying to publish new books. So this became a compromise with Phil Suling. No, I won't um, keep the early issues of Cerebus in print. Uh, I wanted them to have um, the collectible value that I thought was and still think is, is incredibly mm -hmm. important. Uh, but in, in order to make it available to uh, a new audience, uh, I, I'll do you know a, a three-issue collection. And uh, Phil went, four issues. <laughs> and I went, okay, okay, four issues. It's like, man, oh, man. It, and the thing is, you, you still don't make anybody happy because then the audience that had bought the four issues, um, when I put a new story in each issue, went, you're forcing me to spend $5 on comic books that I already bought in, <laughs> in order to get one story. And it's like, <laughs> you, can't, you can't please all of the people all of the time. There's no question about that. Do you think it was a benefit? It, oh, sorry. Yeah, it, it was definitely um, the thing to do. It was, you, you have to make uh, the early issues available if it's a continuing story, which Cerebus was, so that people coming in late can, uh, can get caught up. So do you think it was a benefit then, Dave, to to kind of be in there in the in the infancy of this kind of boom because there wasn't a lot of uh preconceived notions I guess or or like you were you were you were able to kind of fight through those preconceived notions whereas I think so many people now when when they're creators they're they're constantly doing the same kind of things and I don't know that you see as much out of the box thinking with with independent creators uh yeah that's um, that's a good point. You, 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 sort, you have uh, benefits on both sides. Like one of the things is there's not a lot of competition, which is, uh, again, being a, um, a definite um, regular at Now and Then Books, um, seeing exactly how many new comic books there were. When uh, Harry started getting new comics in, uh, some through Kitchener News here in town and some through uh, Andromeda Distribution in Toronto, which was Ron Van Leeuwen, who was the guy that owned the Silver Snail. Um, you could see, okay, this is exactly how many comic books um, DC is publishing, how many Marvel's publishing. Apart from that, there was Charlton, Gold Key, um, and then a sort of a big jump from there to uh, the fanzine level stuff. And that was when you go, uh, I think there's room for more comic books on these stands. So yeah, that coming in before everybody else figured that out and said, uh, yeah, I think uh, you know we can do a line of comic books and we'll compete head to head with Marvel and DC, but we'll do black and white comics with color covers instead of uh, um, color comics. Uh, that that was 
that was a big plus. Uh, at the same time, now you can go to your local comic book store, wherever you're living in North America. It's not going to be too far away from you. And really keep your finger on the pulse of exactly what's going on, what's selling, what isn't selling. Um, all I could find out was what was selling at Now and Then Books which wasn't necessarily what was selling at uh, the Silver Snail or, uh, or the, the, the other comic book stores, which were, you know, two hours, three hours away. So if you were basing it off of uh, kind of what was moving, what, what then were kind of the like inspiration and peer books to Cerebus when you were in those early days? Uh, I was really doing a different kind of thing. It was, um, in terms of the content, it was uh, uh, with the wave of funny animal comics that came out after Howard the Duck. Uh, oh. I glommed on to the idea that I don't think Howard the Duck is selling because it's a funny animal comic. I think it's selling because it's a funny animal in the world of humans comics. Uh, which comics can do better than uh, than virtually any other medium. And that was when I went, okay, before anybody else figures that out, I'm going to do one of those. I'm going to do a essentially uh, sword and sorcery Howard the Duck. Uh, um, Howard the Duck meets Conan the Barbarian kind of thing. Right. So it, it, there, there wasn't, there wasn't really anything else that I was looking at. Going, uh, okay, how do I, uh, how do I fit into this environment? It was, uh, how do I figure out how to draw as much like Barry Windsor Smith as possible <laughs> overnight? <laughs> like, the more this looks like BWS, the funnier it's going to be. And, uh, and then also saying, uh, let's make it actually funny instead of sort of, you know, the the uh, the cliche uh, mad style parody, which wasn't when it first came out a cliche, but became a cliche later on. It was uh, no, let's do a cartoon character that's like really good Chuck Jones, really good Chuck Jones. Um, <laughs> Roadrunner cartoons, really good Chuck Jones, uh, duck amok, that kind of thing <laughs> with the facial expressions and, um, you know, uh, re really, really exaggerated characterizations, but funny. So that was, that was really, uh, nobody else was doing that or even thinking that. So it was, Okay, I was more thinking, okay, what are the funniest Warner Brothers cartoons and what makes them funny? Um, <laughs> what makes me laugh out loud when I watch it? Like uh, uh, the Marx Brothers, A Night at the Opera. That funny. Let's do that kind of funny. So with that as a starting point, I mean, within – now looking at it as, as the phone books, it seems quick. I know it was – you know, four or five years of evolution um, to get to the more the political satire and the religious satire that got into um, you know a couple of 
phone books in. Is it was that a slow transition or was it a conscious transition? Uh, it was sort of an implication of the size of the thing that I was doing. Once I decided I was going to do 300 issues of a comic book because I wanted it to be finite. I was very aware of Hal Foster saying that uh, the last bunch of Prince Valiant strips that he did were lousy. And I thought, okay, you're going to have to, in order to avoid being in that situation, you're going to have to um, cap this and say, this is when I'm going to do Cerebus until, and try and figure out, okay, when am I going to still be at what I hope is my peak? So that was the first part of how that came about. And then it was a matter of, okay, uh, what am I going to do within the confines of this 6,000-page um, graphic novel? And that was when I started working on high society and saying, okay, I'm going to do um, Cerebus, uh, you know, goes to, uh, gets enmeshed in civilization because of his link with Lord Julius. And he goes to Est, so um, he, he just sort of rises through, uh, through the whole political economic structure and thought, okay, I can do pretty much anything in, uh, in 500 pages. Uh, 500 pages sounds like the most unlimited canvas to work on <laughs> until I was actually into it and working on it in my notebooks. And going well. Okay, he's gonna he's gonna run for prime minister. So I want to do the campaign, and then I want to do the political convention, uh, and then I want to do election night. When you start writing that down in your notebook, and you're going, okay, 20 pages of this, 20 pages of this, 20 pages of this. It's like suddenly your 500 pages are evaporating, <laughs> and it's like uh, this was supposed to also get into whole, the whole big religious thing in the city-state of the East with, uh, uh, with the church and all of the rest of it. And uh, I don't think we're going to get there. So uh, <laughs> then it was a matter of once high society was done going, okay, now I'm going to do the religion side, but instead of trying to figure out how to cram it all in there, which I ended up having to do with high society, uh, let's really let out the shower curtain on this one and um, do, uh, do a thousand pages. And it actually ended up being uh, more than a thousand pages once, uh, once I was figuring out volume two. As you, were, uh, as you were working on high society and knowing now the reasons why you started that storyline, did it cause you to change Cerebus's personality more than you thought it would or was it kind of already that was already who he was and and you knew it and it was just this this storyline was a the opportunity to to showcase it uh i guess i would take issue with the fact that that Cerebus would change that's really the, the joke uh it didn't matter whether he was uh Cerebus the prime minister Cerebus the pope or or Cerebus the house guest he was still the same obnoxious little three-foot-tall Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Um, 
it's, there are people like that. I, I'm, I, I don't think I'm a person like that myself. Um, but uh, I was always aware of people who were like that, where I look at them and go, uh, you're really sort of impervious to life's little lessons. Like uh, in Citizen Kane, when uh, uh, the... Uh, the politician at Gettys when uh, when Kane's defeating Gettys, and uh, he traps him with his with his mistress, and he says to him, "If it was anybody else, I'd say it was a lesson to you, but I can see that you're going to need more than one lesson." And that was definitely Sarah's. It's like um, learning from things is not not one of those things that Sarah's is really good at. <laughs> Uh, you also played with a lot of – once you were through church and state, you started kind of being much more experimental with the, the storytelling style, uh, like a lot more – like you started playing with with text pieces, and Jacka's story uh, tonally was very different. So where like, where were you as a creator and as a – like exploring your creativity? Uh, sort of in the – with great power comes great responsibility. Uh, end of things, of realizing, okay, if you have this kind of creativity, this kind of creative freedom, and suddenly being aware, uh, I'm probably one of the first guys in human history who has gotten complete creative freedom. I can do whatever I want to do in Cerebus. Then it was a matter of, okay, I have to live up to this. And one of the things that I was definitely conscious of living up to was um, what I saw as the larger implications behind the term graphic novel. Uh, if we're going to do novels, if we're going to do comic books that are supposed to be equivalent to graphic, equivalent to novels and have the same adult values as novels, um, then you can't really just do um, 300 Chuck Jones cartoon. It's, uh, <laughs> you, you, ha you have to have uh, a larger structure behind it, a larger point that you want to make, um, and uh, addressing, uh, okay, the, here, here are the elements that I think uh, I want to do in my novel. The, these all of these novels will be Cerebus novels, but um, Church and State is going to be two volumes um, thematically about religion, faith, theology, uh, Jaka's story about um, uh, love, marriage, romance, um, all, and all of the implications of that, what that consists of, and um, definitely coming at that as much as possible from the female side. Uh, so that was really where that was coming from, was saying, okay, the, the best novels that I ever read were um, uh, Dostoevsky's, and they were always concerned with very, very large themes. They were, they were very, very entertaining 
and very, very engaging. It's not like I was uh, having to trudge through them just for the <laughs> sake of saying that I read Dostoevsky. But uh, there's there's the different levels there. There's uh, this is this is uh, what what I need uh, what needs to be said large scale, and this is uh, down here micromanaging how entertaining I can make it. <laughs> you you mentioned it, uh, how much influence did uh, did Will Eisner have on you? A great deal of influence. Actually, there's, there's some some local guys that uh, I hadn't seen for a long time since you know back in the, the 1970s, um, who uh, were saying you were always different. Uh, even these guys, and they were like four or five years older than me, uh, were all. Uh, Jack Kirby, Jack Kirby, Jack Kirby. Um, you know, sun rises and sets on Jack Kirby. And I was the one going, no, no, no. Will Eisner, Will Eisner, Will Eisner. <laughs> um, because Will, uh, with the spirit, and that was pretty much, that, that was all that uh, uh, we, had, we had seen of his work. Uh, that was definitely in that category. How he told the story, how how he broke down uh, the panels and pages, uh, how he moved you through the story, um, how he made the ca the characters and the situations engaging, and how he always had a larger point to make. Um, I didn't. I wasn't getting that from Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby was big and powerful and muscular, and nobody could ever beat Jack at that game. But uh, whatever comic books I was going to end up doing, it wasn't going to be about um, how big a spaceship that I can make or uh, uh, how many things that I can uh, really blow up really good. <laughs> so, yeah, Will was... Um, always a, uh, a mentor for me. And then, of course, uh, Contract with God came out, um, I believe, the year after Cerebus started, and that was the first time that somebody called it a graphic novel. And that was like the gauntlet being thrown down. It's like, <laughs> uh, okay, now, now somebody has actually called it something where you've been going, okay, uh, I don't know what it is that I exactly that I want to do, but uh, I know that uh, it's not it's not shoot 'em ups and it's not space opera. Uh, I think I, I I hope I have something larger to say than that, and, and not in a pejorative sense. I mean it's uh, larger in terms of uh, more of my mind engaged instead of just how cool can I make this look. Uh, I was always aware of that. I always respected the guys enormously who could do that. The, the Jack Kirby's looking at uh, at Gene Day and uh, what Star Wars did to him when it came out, <laughs> and it's like, oh my God! Like I looked at Star Wars when I went to it. I was like 21 years old, and my reaction was about the same as Howard Chaykin's. 
Uh, where was this when I was 15 years old? <laughs> but uh, for Gene Day, this just transformed his life. And it's like, oh, my God, you're actually drawing Star Wars on paper and meaning it. Like, uh, let's get this as close to Star Wars as we possibly can. Um, inking, in quotation marks, Carmen Encentino, who absolutely could not care less about Star Wars at the time. <laughs> I mean, picture Carmine's, you know, in his 60s or whatever, and it's like, used to be publisher of DC, and what am I doing? I'm penciling this, this stupid space opera thing. It's like, how... It's not a question of, am I going to mail it in? It's like, how cheap can I mail it in? Can I send this as a postcard? <laughs> and it's, it's like Gene was, the perf- it, Gene was the perfect guy to give it to. He goes like, I'm not sure if this is Chewbacca, but this is Chewbacca now, and it's going to look like exactly like Chewbacca. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> Having recently read those, I can see exactly where you're coming from. <laughs> that Gene Day really was, saved that. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And it was uh, all, all done by mail, too. It's like there was no FedEx at the time. So it was uh, just sit down and ink as fast as you can and do it as accurately as, it, as you can. So it, it looks like all of the characters. You had all of the Star Wars books and the Ralph McQuarrie book of exactly what these spaceships looked like. It's like, oh, man, I, I can't believe you're that interested, but uh, I, I can see that you're that interested. That was the reason uh, issue 23 of Cerebus, I did uh, The Beguiling, which was uh, a parody of the Clint Eastwood film, The Beguiled, oh, where... Yeah. Um, He's uh, at the girls' school, and it was that was me going, okay, here's Gene Day over here with all of the high plains drifter, oh we oh we oh, Clint Eastwood stuff. <laughs> That's Clint Eastwood to Gene. This is the only Clint Eastwood I'm remotely interested in. <laughs> so I'll do this. Can you can you tell everybody a little bit more about about Gene Day and? Uh, you know, his influence on you and why he should be remembered in the industry, his contributions. Uh, prolific. Uh, absolutely the most prolific artist. Uh, I met him through uh, Gus Funnel. Uh, when I interviewed Gus Funnel, who was writing for Skywolf uh, magazines, and Gene was trying to get in there, and Gene was trying to get in everywhere and went to see him at his studio and the mounds of artwork that he had produced just in the space of like three years or however long it was, the fact that he was doing dark fantasy, his own digest fanzine, and starting to publish it, but had done mock-up individual digest science fiction fantasy um, publications of his own. He would do one of them at night would come home from work and sit down and write science fiction horror stories, um, draw the cover, 
and color the cover and type the whole thing out on his typewriter and then staple it and then put it on the pile with the rest of them. I think he must have had 200 of those before he even tried publishing. Oh, wow. And when you're somebody like me who would do a cartoon <laughs> and then mail it to Playboy and then just sort of hang out in my parents' basement waiting for it to come back. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, see, here's the difference here. This, this is why this guy is, uh, you know, making maybe like uh, $2,000 a year, and this is why you, ain't, you aren't making squat. So, <laughs> that, was, that was the real... Uh, the thing about Gene Day was just the sheer productivity that he had. He uh, he worked from the moment that he got up until the moment he went to bed. And I uh, I think I think he should be remembered for the quality of the work, and I think he is remembered for the quality of the work. And I think there's a uh, there's definitely an evolved pecking order in Gene Day's work where um, the stuff that he did on Star Wars is like Star Wars fans saying, yes, thank you. You actually made it look like Star Wars, which it hadn't before and probably hadn't since looked like. Uh, but more to the point was, I think, what he did on Master of Kung Fu. Um, first with Mike Zek, inking Mike Zek. And then uh, when Mike Zek uh, was able to get off of Master of Kung Fu because it wasn't uh, it wasn't a top selling title, and went and was given uh, I think Captain America, which was a much more high profile book, and nobody wanted to take over uh, Master of Kung Fu, so Gene Day did. And if Gene's going to take over a book and instead of just inking it, he's going to pencil and ink it, then uh, he's going to do uh, narrative storytelling that they ain't seen at Marvel Comics in a long while. <laughs> I, I can jump in so someone else else has a no, no, follow up. No. <laughs> a million, I, but look, go ahead, Keith. <laughs> So uh, that kind of brings us uh, brings us up kind of into the the early '80s. Now, you uh, there's two things I want to hit here. The first is you started getting into the world of publishing outside of Cerebus. Uh, can you tell me a bit about what happened with Puma Blues? Uh, Puma Blues was was later. That was me on my own. Uh, we published other titles when Denny and I were working together. Um, Neil the Horse, uh, Ms. Tree, Journey, Flaming Carrot. Um, and the experience there was that uh, this, this looks like it should work. We should be able to just plug them into our system and uh, not only make more money, but be able to um, share this creative freedom that I had. That was the primary thing that I had. Uh, my interest was um, I want to find guys 
whose work uh, I think is a notch above everybody else's and say, uh, whatever you want to do, you, you come up with it, we'll publish it, and uh, you just do exactly what I'm doing with Cerebus. I don't have to show it to anybody. I don't have to ask anybody's approval. Nobody can change anything on it, on me. Um, when Denny and I split the company, part of the agreement was that uh, I wasn't going to contest any of any of the creators. I wasn't going to say, uh, Aardvark Vanaheim will continue to publish these, these, and these, and you can have the other three. It's like, no, she's got to have a line of books if she's going to have a hope of keeping going. So, okay, um, everybody, everybody goes with you if they're interested in going with you. And I think they all did choose to go with her. But uh, then at, uh, at that point, after I'd been just publishing Cerebus for a while, I thought, uh, it's one of those Daffy Duck moments where you go, Let's try that again. And, uh, <laughs> it's like you can just feel uh, God's custard pie in the wings just waiting to come out <laughs> into your face. But let's try that again. And Michael Zoli and Stephen Murphy came to his dining in uh, uh, Massachusetts and showed me a page that was uh, well, that was interesting. As a as a BWS fan, here comes the guy who's who is Michael Zoli, who is to Barry Windsor Smith what uh, Bill Sienkiewicz was to Neil Adams. The guy that makes you go, "Oh, okay. Why don't the rest of us just give up?" Because <laughs> nobody, nobody is going to match these guys. This is unbelievable. So I said. Um, this looks really interesting. Uh, I want to publish it. So it was. Let's let's try this again with one other title, and let's make it um, have a separate publishing imprint called Aardvark One International. And same deal. You guys do the book. Uh, no no interference. No um, advice. No anything else. Just sink or swim on your own. And. Uh, it never, it never really caught fire, but it, uh, it definitely had it, a very ardent audience, and they were, they were pretty reliable. They weren't, they weren't as reliable as I was at getting books out, uh, which became sort of the crux of the thing. That, that was the custard pie that um, I just wasn't going to avoid. Unless you can find out if these guys can do a monthly book, um, most of the time the books are just going to struggle uh, trying to find an audience. The uh, monthly thing is something that you just can't fudge on or say, uh, oh, but, it, but it's really good. Yes, it's really good, but, but monthly is... is uh, what you need in order for, for this to take hold as habitual entertainment, which is what comics are. Mm. So, um, unfortunately, it, it, it never really happened uh, with, uh, with the Puma Blues the way that it should have. 
Once, there is a. Uh, go ahead. I was just going to say it's, it's uh, you know I I grew up as a you know superhero comic kid and I I remember clearly high school art class someone handed me a copy of uh, of Puma Blues and it was it was one of those like the 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 clouds parted and the light came down and I saw yeah. what comics could be. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was. Uh, I'm I'm very very. Uh, pleased with the fact that I was able to publish it and uh, the fact that uh, this was Michael Zolli's first professional work, that's one of those, uh, there's anybody in the comic book field you want to be able to say, yeah, I was the one who brought this to people's attention, uh, this guy to people's attention. Uh, Michael Zolli's at or near the top of the list. Absolutely. There is a beautiful hardcover collection that was just done a few years ago of, of all those. It's finally getting uh, um, some rec- – I finally got some recognition that way. Yeah, I did the introduction for that, which, uh, which I was very happy to do and, and said uh, this is now owned jointly. This introduction is now owned jointly by uh, uh, Michael Zolli and Stephen Murphy. Either of them can publish it anywhere that they want. But that's the other thing that I. This is the other thing that I've always been very, very ardent about is um, uh, not exactly public domain, but uh, I think anybody that works on anything should have the right to reproduce what they've worked on, and uh, that should just be how we do things as a society. I don't think any of the, the corporations or anybody else gets hurt by that. And I think we've been edging in that direction where, uh, you know, big name creators are doing prints of characters that they're doing at DC or Marvel. And it's like, uh, I think Disney will survive. <laughs> this, this guy's selling 30 of these at 50 bucks each or whatever else. And it helps him to pay his rent. So. Let's let's just uh, call it a day. Everybody goes home happy. <laughs> there was a there was a move for uh, for a bill of rights a bill of rights for comic creators that came up around that time. And I know that you were part of the start of that, but then you you had a, a disagreement of of some of the direction. Uh, yeah, that was um, that actually came out of the Puma Blues. Uh, situation where uh, Diamond threatened not to carry the Puma Blues because I was selling uh, the high society trade paperback directly um, to uh, to Cerebus fans. And that's, that's another one of those self-publishing custard pies where you go, okay, uh, it's, it's nice to have that kind of autonomy and that absolute control. But that, uh, that's where you get into, with great power comes great responsibility. Uh, how do I know that I'm doing the right thing on this? And that was when I started consulting with uh, um, Steve Bissett and uh, John Toddleman, who were going to be doing Taboo for me, and uh, Kevin Eastman and Pete Laird, and the guys that they were publishing, and... Uh, 
essentially saying, uh, I think we have to sit down and figure out where, uh, where the boundaries are. Um, can a distributor tell me what to do? Can I tell a distributor what to do? And am I allowed to sell my work to who I want to sell it to, or do I have to sell it to, to, a, to the distributors? Um, so that was, that was where that negotiation started in uh, Toronto and then uh, moved to Northampton. And uh, that was when Scott McLeod and Larry Martyr uh, joined in on that. And Scott was the one who brought in a, uh, a rough draft of a Creator's Bill of Rights. And it really wasn't what I was talking about, and it really wasn't what uh, Kevin and Peter were talking about. Uh, but it, it, at the same time, it was relevant because it was, it was talking about the boundaries from the freelance side um, of okay, where, uh, what rights do we have as creators? Uh, I think the bottom line on that is as many rights as the publisher is willing to give you and as many rights as you're willing to sign a contract on. So hmm. essentially, um, one of the, one of the um, clauses in, uh, in Scott's Bill of Rights was uh, we have the right to choose our means of distribution. So it's like, I got what I came here for. Uh, I don't know if you guys are all interested in keeping going with this, but uh, this looks far more to me like a uh, labor management negotiation than uh, uh, what I was looking for, which was, what what is what are the boundaries between uh, uh, my control over my work as a self-publisher and uh, the distributor's control over my work as the distributor of that work? So, having published, attempted to publish other books, who are some of the um, the small press publishers who you most admire over the years who who made a go of it? Uh, I guess all of them. I, I, it's one of those, uh, anytime somebody actually draws an entire comic book and prints an entire comic book and uh, gets out there and sells it to people, that's terrifically impressive. Um, I mean, I can, I can look at different people's things and say, okay, I don't really think you have the chops for doing this. But in, in a lot of ways, that makes it more admirable that you can see exactly how, the, how difficult this is uh, for these people to do it. And um, the fact that they, they still persevered with it, that they still, uh, and uh, then you get into the even more unlikely category of the people who are spending what is for them vast sums of money on, uh, on publishing their work and getting a, a small, small fraction of that back. I mean, 
you know, $1,500 goes in on this side or $2,000 goes in on this side. And at the end of the day, uh, they might end up making $75 <laughs> and do multiple issues. It's, uh, it's one of those, uh, Bloggings will continue until morale improves. <laughs> oh, you're really speaking to me. So I don't want to tell you how much we put into our graphic novel. I don't. I don't want to say how expensive that is. Exactly. It, it's and and uh, that's a graphic novel. Picture what it takes to do uh, 20 issues of a comic book that mm. way, uh, where each time out. Uh, it's still not. It's still not making its money back. Um, and then you get into the problem of, okay, I finally sold all the number ones. Where am I going to get money to print more number ones? <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's a it's a real meat grinder. It's a real meat grinder. So uh, so my hats off to uh, to anyone who uh, who is who is able to self publish in that way. Um, Terry Moore in, impresses me uh, a great deal uh, just because of the, not only the dogged determination to self-publish, but uh, not to do um, Strangers in Paradise and then uh, go right back to Strangers in Paradise again. It's like, uh, okay, I want to do a graphic novel, another graphic novel, but I, I don't want to do something that's that or even in that same category. And uh, he definitely, uh, you know, went off on co two completely different uh, directions with the, with the next two, uh, two or three graphic novels that he did, uh, graphic novel series that he did. And um, always very accomplished stuff, always, uh, uh, he uh, he steers you through, um, as, as Kim Thompson said about uh, my work on Cerebus, it's like uh, being in a car with somebody who's a very skilled driver and driving you through city streets at a breakneck pace and uh, doing it so adeptly that you're, you're not missing anything on the way. You're getting, you're getting full value out of the ride. Um, I always liked uh, Colleen's A Distant Soil. Um, I, I, again, it's very, it's very difficult to describe the experience of being, being Dave Sim, where um, I think the, the, the situation that uh, I, always, I always had and always have now is uh, you get the comic book in with the cover letter, and it's like, Okay, uh, put the cover, uh, read the cover letter real quickly, and then put it aside, and then um, you read whatever it is that they sent you. And uh, when you come to the end of it, particularly if it's if it's one that you really enjoyed, and you go, "Wow, that's uh, that's pretty good stuff," then uh, then you go back to the letter and you go, "Wow, that's the Keith Callback." Ha, 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 ha,
I say that almost every day. I, I'm, not, I'm not making that up. I mean, it, it is a situation of, you know how it is when you read a comic book that you've never heard about before, never seen, and you go, well, okay, you know, somebody loaned it to me, somebody gave it to me, and you get to the end of it. Picture if when that happened to you, it came from a letter from the guy. <laughs> That must be surreal. <laughs> it, it's a, it's a great job, Kirk. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> now you are there, and there's there's a lot of independent creators, and I'm always interested in this kind of case because you are totally known for Cerebus, and uh, and I mean all the other work that you've done, it is dwarfed by Cerebus, and there's lots of other creators out there who are known for one character. At what point do you kind of start like? Or was that was there ever a point where you tried to really get away from that, or or is it always just you want to own that, you want to to continue to to be Cerebus until until the end of days, kind of thing? Uh, you you can't get away from it. It's uh, so you if you're if you're at all wise, um, you try to understand. Uh, who who you are uh, to the general comics public and be that as much as possible. When, I, when I'm doing um, one of these interviews, one of these discussions, it's, uh, okay, they're, they're going to want to know about the early times. It's the same as, uh, you know, if somebody said, hey, I, uh, I scraped together uh, Two hundred thousand dollars, and uh, uh, I bought you uh, lunch with Paul McCartney. It's like, uh, what am I going to talk to him about? I'm not going to talk to him about Wayne. <laughs> about the symphony that he wrote, or uh, uh, the new wife. How, how does she differ from the other wives? Or uh, uh, now, what is the relationship between uh, between you and uh, and Stella? Do you talk about fashion? It's like, no, I'm going to talk to him about the Beatles, right? <laughs> and he's he's used to that. I mean, it's uh, I I think uh, the di uh, what you do is try and try and be as engaging as possible and go, okay, uh, I got a story about that. I've got a story about that. I've got a story about that, and uh, yeah, just try and try and condense it. Try and try and give them what they're looking for, which is uh, I I want to talk to um, uh, 22, 23, 24 year old Dave Sim. It's like ah, oh, sorry, he's not here. Only 63 year old Dave Sims here. Now. <laughs> uh, and it's like, uh, can you pretend to be him? Well, okay, no problem. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, that, oh, you know, Keith, you go ahead. I'm sure. <laughs> sure. There's so many ways to go off that. <laughs> so I, you're 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 back with service in hell. Uh, so you've been doing that as like a series of one shots. Is kind of how you're packaging them. Yeah, yeah, that uh, that came out of um, 
I was employing Sandy Atwell uh, one or two days a week, and one of the things uh, that we did was we had a um, one o'clock meeting every Thursday, just the two of us for two hours figuring out, okay, uh, what can be done here to support Cerebus? What can be done here to uh, uh, get people talking about Cerebus again, um, get the, the intellectual property um, out in the public eye? And um, it, it didn't happen, it didn't happen right away, but when it did happen, it, it, was, it was pretty fast when uh, Essentially, I was um, uh, sick over over Christmas, and uh, going well. If I'm sick, I I want to read something funny because you know at least <laughs> I'll feel better because I'm laughing. And uh, there's a, a strip um, that is a um, photo montage engravings strip. Um, is now his name's uh, slipping my mind, which it shouldn't. And um, it, it was exactly that kind of thing. You paste up um, these turn-of-the-century steel engravings and have them talking about modern stuff. And very, very funny material. Very, very funny material. Can we do the can we do the thing that we we just did where where you cut the tape? So that I can go and find. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Like, this is really, happy really. You can you can leave this part in. But, uh, <laughs> the point where Dave Dave hung up and then phoned back. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'll be back. Okay. Okay. <laughs> David Malky. M A L K I. M A L K I, David Malky. Yeah. Okay, I w I had too many letters in in my in my mind. Uh, Dave, David Malky, and and what's the what's the strip called? Can you can you Google search his name? It's uh, let me see, David Malky. It's an online strip. Uh, Wondermark. Wondermark. That's what it's called. Thank you. No problem. <laughs> That would have been bothering me all day, David. <laughs> that's one of the that's one of the problems with not having internet access and being sixty three years old. It's like, <laughs> man, oh man, what is that? Um, which that's one of the reasons I don't have internet access because I spend all day going. What's this thing? I type it in, and then uh, okay, and that that leads me over here. Now I got work to do. But uh, yeah, David Malky's Wondermark. Um, somebody sent me the collection, and uh, I actually found out quite, uh, when I was putting together my correspondence boxes, I got uh, I got a comic uh, a comic book from David Malky before he was doing that. Uh, when he started doing that, who was uh, exactly one of those situations of uh, here's the actual guy and here's the first first time that I uh, I read the thing, and uh, very very funny strip. I mean, absolutely hilarious. 
And that was when I started thinking, uh, why don't I do something like this with CeraVis? And the natural fit was, well, take uh, um, the uh, Gustave Doré engravings of Dante's Inferno and put CeraVis in hell and uh, do Joe Kubert uh, uh, digital lettering and just paste up the strips from there. And uh, Sandy can do the, the actual Photoshopping and Sandy can write, write a bunch of them. Sandy's a very funny guy. So uh, we'll, we'll be competing to see who can make who laugh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Which is, uh, if, you, if you're looking for a way to make a living, any job where you're, where you're getting paid to try and make somebody laugh harder than you can make them laugh, uh, that's a pretty good job. Yeah. <laughs> in 2019, when there's not a lot of stuff to laugh about. <laughs> that's, that's excellent. Um, so you're saying about... Oh, sorry. You go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, go ahead. Kate. Okay. Uh, you were saying about keeping... Kind of renewing Cerebus in, in the audience size, kind of keeping the... The, the property alive. Uh, I've I've supported a couple of the Kickstarters. I I just got the nice birthday card. Oh, thank you. I appreciate uh, that. <laughs> I I have wondered um, if you if uh, why there's not another phone book because there's definitely enough content for one. Uh yeah. The the problem is there's finite resources at this point, so it's really more a matter of uh, it's more important to keep what's here in print. Mm. And um, right now, Jocka's story is just coming back into print. We've, we've remastered Jocka's story, and there was about a half dozen of us um, uh, proofreading it. I've uh, reread Jocka's story three times in, uh, in the last three weeks. Uh, looking for for typos, um, which with all of the text that's in there uh, is a daunting task. And I I didn't even find the the lion's share of the typos. I'd say that Eddie Kana found more than I did. And it's it's as close to perfect as you can get now. But um, that's the problem of uh, with the with the uh, well, you guys knowing from independent publishing what the cost of paper is doing mm -hmm. uh, now, which is just unbelievable how much is going up, and essentially it's it's a matter of having to keep the price of a modest new car in uh, in the bank at all times so that I can pay a printing bill for a trade paperback. It, uh, in this case, Jocka's story and then Church and State 2 is, uh, is out of print. Both of those have been remastered by Sean Robinson, who is the absolute best um, digital guy on the planet, bar none, for um, detailed artwork like that. Um, so essentially, I should be able to um, take the money that I've got now, print Jocka's story, 
get the money in from Diamond for Jocka's story, and then use that money to uh, print the remastered Church and State. And uh, there's there's a few dollars left over, but uh, it's not uh, it's not the cash cow that uh, that it was at one time. So if I if I try doing another trade paperback, then it's okay. Now I got to keep the price of two cards in the bank. Right. Uh, in in or and and put them together, it's uh, it, it's far more within range of doing uh, a monthly comic book and uh, putting that out there so that uh, and, and doing something new, doing something as as funny as possible. But um, <laughs> uh, I understand uh, the other problem is. Where do you draw the line of okay, what goes in that other volume? Um, when you actually sit down and look at the list, and there is uh, a number of different lists for Cerebus, <laughs> the color volume, and Cerebus, the um, black and white volume 17. Um, it's it's up around church and state numbers. It's like 600 pages. Because um, you did the, I, there, there is, there is a, a you can, there's a readable version of the color one online that you, that you right. looked at doing at one point, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's one of those. You can do that. It, 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 it's definitely a uh, a dream come true for Cerebus fans. But there's really not that many Cerebus fans. <laughs> <laughs> How many people do I have to get together, Dave? That's what. I, that's well, what let, give me some numbers. Let, let, let me qualify that. I think there's probably a fair number of Cerebus fans. Uh, question is, how many Cerebus customers are there? Because <laughs> uh, that's two different things. It's um, the uh, I, I was thinking the other day that uh, I'm probably one of the world's biggest Norman Mailer fans, but looking at, uh, if I haven't got all of Norman Mailer's books, I've definitely got almost all of Norman Mailer's books and saying, uh, Dave, you didn't buy any of those new. <laughs> no, you, you bought all of those in used bookstores. How, how many... How many books did you buy where Norman made even like ten bucks off of it? And I think that's that's really the situation with Cerebus. Like they're yeah. they're very expensive books to begin with, um, particularly in 2019 for your average person. Uh, how much um, money do they have to throw around on entertainment? Um, so it's it is far more likely that they're going to get them uh, online um, in an eBay auction or in a used bookstore or one of those kinds of situations. And um, there's always people who are even more desperate for money who go, well, um, wasn't going to sell these, but it's time for me to sell my Cerebus trade paperbacks. So it, the churn on that, I think, is probably pretty substantial. Although um, 
Form and Void has been out of print for a while and actually was just going out of print when the, uh, it's the, the book with uh, Hammer Ernest Way, the Ernest Hemingway par- parody in it. <laughs> and um, that was just when uh, the Hemingway Society got, got wind of, uh, of this book and I ended up sending them, I think, several boxes of uh, back issues from, uh, from Form and Void, from the Form and Void run. And uh, at this point, I think the cheapest you can find Form and Void for on, online is like 85 bucks or something like that. Because there's all these ravenous Hemingway fans going, I want a copy of that book. I don't care about the rest of it, but I want the Hemingway book. So, um, Sorry, was that eBay that, you said that, I could that'll, sell? <laughs> that'll, that'll be the next one. That'll, that's uh, after, after Jocka's Story and Church and State 2. Um, definitely, I have to get Form and Void back in print. So um, not, not really looking for, uh, for new, <laughs> new trade paperback uh, adventures to have. <laughs> I'd probably do I'd probably do Cerebus and Hell first. I'd probably do uh, a Swords and Her- Swords of Cerebus, uh, four issues of uh, of Cerebus and Hell, um, before I would do a Let's collect all of the uh, all of the outside material. People who are interested in uh, in the Cerebus short stories, definitely uh, a moment of Cerebus website. There's a lot of material on there, which uh, mm-hmm. I'm fine with, um, just because if you're not going to do a book and you can't do a book, uh, the demand is there. So if, uh, if, you're, if you're looking for uh, Dave Sim short stories that haven't been collected, uh, a moment of service is the place to get to. Now, just as just as if uh, you're uh, you're looking for the digital uh, version of Cerebus, uh, let's face it, you can get a hernia carrying Cerebus. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was one of those. Uh, somebody was asking about. Uh, have you ever thought of doing like a, a, a complete Cerebus collection? <laughs> and it's like. Uh, what, like Cerebus the suitcase? You know, <laughs> <laughs> the shipping crate? <laughs> Cerebus the steamer truck. That would be <laughs> Here's all the places Cerebus has been that are, that are stickers on here. Uh, so, yeah, if, you, if, you're, if you're going on vacation and you don't want to take uh, Cerebus, High Society, Church and State 1, Church and State 2, and Jocka's story in your luggage, you'd like to take some clothes as well. Cerebusdownloads.com. <laughs> um, you can get all six thousand pages for ninety nine dollars. And you've got uh, there's at least one of the volumes that you've got uh, gratis on there too, right? Yep, yep. We're uh, it's it's uh, it's a laughable website because it's. Uh, like something from 1991. <laughs> I, I thought it was a GeoCities when I got to it, but I, I got a couple things off there anyway. <laughs> okay, it's, uh, you know, laugh yourself sick. 
that uh, <laughs> this, this is the sort of website you go to on CompuServe. And, uh, <laughs> but you can't beat the prices, I'll tell you. Absolutely. 99 bucks for 6,000 pages. Not only that, it's $99 Canadian, which is what, like $15 US? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not that bad. Come on, these guys are in Calgary. They know better than that. <laughs> well, I, but no, I, seriously, I actually... if, if anybody's listening to this in the US, 99 Canadian would be what now? Uh, $79, $79 US? $78 US? Somewhere around there, yeah. Maybe even a little, maybe closer to 75 Um a great so, deal, no matter what. what. Six thousand <laughs> pages. Deal. You put it, you put it on your phone. You put it on your iPad, whatever it is, and you're like Superman. You're carrying six thousand pages <laughs> around with you, reading them whenever you want. And it's six thousand pages. When you get to the end, it's time to restart. Start from yeah. the reading again. It's, uh, <laughs> as of, as of today, that's uh, seventy three fifty Canadian or uh, American. Seventy three dollars US. U.S. for or ninety nine dollars Canadian, and dropping like a stone. Hang on, <laughs> hang on, Americans. We have no idea where the bottom is. Keep swimming. <laughs> and you want more? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> There you go. That, was that actually something that that, uh, that you had to face the, the Canadian dollar and it, it affecting your your um, yeah I, I guess your distribution and that type of thing into the states. Uh, it, it's, it's been a, it's been a weird roller coaster ride. I mean, the, uh, the early 2000s, um, it, it looked like we were flying. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> wow, look at them go. Look at, look at, look at their, look at their revenues. It's like, it's because we're being paid in U.S. dollars. It's not worth flying. <laughs> Canada is thinking. Canada is thinking so fast. It looks like we're flying. <laughs> the same the same situation now it's um with the with the quantities which uh, uh thank you diamond comic distributors there they they agreed to take uh a thousand copies of Jaka's story uh to make it possible to do um the printing bill on a thousand copies is sixteen thousand dollars and the revenues is sixteen thousand dollars, but it's sixteen thousand dollars U.S. So there's my profit margin. I make thirty percent on the exchange, um, and if if I was selling to a Canadian distributor at that rate, I wouldn't be making anything. Now, you you were talking about the ninety nine dollars. Obviously, is a, is a great deal for six thousand pages, but you don't really have any content on Amazon on Kindle. Um, you know, I think Comicsology has has the first volume of Cerebus, or maybe it's and, High Society. Cerebus and Held is on there, I think. But yeah. uh, it's not really. You kind of haven't gone to those other other services. And what's the reasoning yeah. behind that? I don't trust them. Hmm. <laughs> Simple. That's fair. Yeah. No, it's like I, I, it's, that's that's partly a punchline, but it's partly uh, no. These people are the biggest vultures. Um, devouring everything in sight and gradually using more and more draconian uh, and I don't usually use that adjective very uh, very often but in this case it applies draconian um, 
terms of, of participation with them and then uh, doing retroactive uh, terms where they go, uh, okay, we're just call it, we're uh, emailing you to notify you that these are now the terms under which your 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 books are are being sold. And it's like uh, they're Amazon. If they want to get to the point where they say, uh, okay, well, uh, you know, we've been sort of like sharing with you up until now. But now we own it. Mm. How am I going to stop them? Yeah, it's, no, uh, I, I never thought of it that way. That is a, that's, uh, that's a frightening thought. Uh, if you if you talk to actual publishers, talk to talk to people who are actually dealing with Amazon and uh, dealing with Amazon's terms, either as self publishers or as publishers. Uh, they're they're the 900 pound gorilla. They sleep wherever they want, and they tell you exactly what you're going to do and how you're going to publish, and you're going to send your books to them in this form, and you're going to do this and you're going to do that. Uh, I would rather work with Diamond Comic Distributors. I'd rather be able to uh, phone up and talk to Tim Lanahan and say, uh, "Here's the situation that I'm in." Um, Here's here's what I can offer Diamond. Uh, here's what I'm hoping Diamond can do for me. And um, these are I'm not dictating terms to you, and Diamond doesn't dictate terms to me. We sit down and figure out what's going to work the best for us, and what's going to work best for the comic book stores. And I would far far rather uh, keep comic book stores in business. And if one way of doing that is taking whatever amount of money uh, Amazon would be making off of Cerebus and making sure the comic stores make that money off of Cerebus, uh, that's always been the way that, that I'm going to go. Uh, 